Won't you join me? Light up the sky. for you what do you see on your right hand corner i see i see my beautiful pin collection and it has pins from my trips to disney and it has some pins related to um a sequel of a movie that we're going to be talking about today. <laughs> chris what is on your left side uh well on my left side here are three making of books um one of them is a 50th anniversary and the other one is a expanded edition of a film that we will be covering later today tara and emily what do you guys have um on your side of the of the street on our side of the street we tara. can tell you it's on our couch right now would you like that that's a good choice <laughs> please elaborate we have we have two deceased mics we have like <laughs> Have not From made two podcasters who are upgrading their systems. Yes. So two deceased mics, <laughs> stuffed animal friends. Mm -hmm. um, They're partying. We have Butterscotch, who's a bear. He's Bun -Bun, been through it. Who's a bunny. We have Corduroy. I think you know his stories. He is indeed married to my bunny, Bun Bun, um, in case Going you didn't know strong. that part. We also have like planners and two books that might have some connection to today. The Ruby Slippers of Oz by Reese Thomas and Wicked by Gregory Maguire. Gregory. <laughs> <laughs> and Connor, what do you have on your side of the fence over there? Um, to my right, the first thing I see is one of the Build a Bear um, as Dorothy um, job. Oh. <laughs> I love this collection. I like that. And behind her is not the Funko Pops, but the vinyl pops of these the Tin Man and the Lion. Yes! Yes! <laughs> well, guys, if you haven't guessed, that is our film that we'll be covering today. We'll be covering The Wizard of Oz. And welcome everyone to our That Gayo Classic Cinema episode. Episode number three, entitled The Wizard of Oz. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, so welcome. Excited. Nate, would you run by a little um, 
televised synopsis of the film that we'll be covering today? Absolutely. So the film we're discussing today is The Wizard of Oz. So in case you haven't seen it because you are new to the planet Earth or... (laughs) Maybe you were off living in Oz yourself, so you just haven't seen it yet, so because you were busy living it. But (laughs) The Wizard of Oz, made in 1939, uh, is the story of a young girl, Dorothy Gale, who gets transported by Cyclone to the magical land of Oz, where she runs into wonderful people such as good witches and munchkins, as well as some wonderful not-so-human people like scarecrows and tin mans and cowardly lions, all on her journey to see the Wizard of Oz who can hopefully send her back home to Kansas. But there'll be some obstacles in the way, maybe a wicked witch or two, maybe a fighting tree. (laughs) We're going to find out today, and we're going to really ask ourselves the question, is there really no place like home? We'll oh. see. Ooh. Ooh, we're going to find okay. out. <laughs> guys, we are so honored to have you guys, everyone here on this episode. I, I've tried my best to include everything in my notes and my and a little trivia that we have planned later today as possible. I'm trying not to tear up. Um, <laughs> we always like to start out with um, introductions. Um Let's start from the left-hand side. Connor, would you like to introduce yourself? Um, um, I am Connor Grant. I am one third of the Garland Gab, where we discuss. <laughs> big fans, big fans. <laughs> uh, where we discuss, dissect everything to do with um, the star of Oz, Miss Judy Garland herself. And uh, if you haven't guessed by the accent, I was introduced once uh, on something as being from New Jersey as a joke. I'm not, oh, <laughs> not quite New Jersey, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So if you haven't guessed by the accent, I am in Ireland at the moment. We have contended with time zone differences and all sorts of things, but we're here and I'm thrilled, delighted. Thank you so much for asking me to be here. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us, Connor. We're honored to have you here. Um, And of course, thank you for making the time to speak with us today. Uh, And I'd like to introduce our other guests as well. Um, We have Tara and Emily from Down the Yellowbrook Pod. Welcome, welcome. Uh, Feel free to get the audiences familiar with your voices if they haven't already recognized you. (laughs) That's true. Well, I am MK or Emily, and this is Tara. I'm the lower voice. <laughs> She's the New Jersey voice. I'm the Jersey voice <laughs> of the crew. We are so excited to be here. It is an honor. It's a privilege. We just love you all and so honored that we've met you through our mutual love of Oz. So we are the co-hosts of Down the Yellow Brick Pod, a podcast that we started in 2020. So we just finished our third season. And it is just our passion project where we get to dive into the original bomb books. We get to off-road into musical theater, The Wiz, Return to Oz, um, and just speak to our favorite artists, our favorite Oz lovers. And we like to think of ourselves as Oz historians in training. I don't think we're there yet. I mean, we're trying. There's a lot to cover. We're scraping some doors. Yeah, we're learning from all of you. And... um, yeah, we're just excited to be here. So this is one of our favorite things to do. Talk about the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, community is the best part of it all. 
and I have to give my thanks words to you. You guys helped me create this podcast. So I just wanted to give another shout out to you guys and thank you guys so much for helping me realize my dreams and helping them come true. No, it's in you, baby. It's, you already have the power. <laughs> you already have the power. <laughs> oh, here we go. Glinda's, my little, my little Glinda's right over there. Oh. <laughs> so we also like to start out the floor by, um, by seeing our, what everyone's introduction was to the Wizard of Oz. Um, ladies, would you like to go first? Sure. sure. Our personal introduction to the Wizard of Oz. Oh my goodness. I mean, I feel like I always remember just that iconic moment of, you know, sitting down and watching the film as a young girl. I think either my best friend's mom gave, there's like a debate apparently between my aunt and my best friend's mom who gave oh, me the VHS first. <laughs> I know. Um, I don't know. The jury's still out. We'll see. But I remember receiving the VHS for maybe Thanksgiving, sitting down, popping it in and laying on the floor with like my head and my hands, my, my legs kicked up. And that transition from sepia tone into color just transported me. Like we rewatched it last night and I just relived that moment so vividly. It's one of my first memories. So my first introduction to Oz was Judy Garland, was the MGM film. And then from there, it just kind of catapulted into dressing up as Dorothy for Halloween, for a random Tuesday. Um, and then, you know, it, I feel like it's so connected to my love of musical theater because it connected me to, you know, the 30s, like old classic music, um, playing the role as a teenager. And then it just kind of took over from there. So it's always, it's always been a part of my psyche and a part of, I feel like it's a defining piece of my life for sure. Yeah, I don't even know if I can like pinpoint the exact thing that like like I like I don't I don't think I remember watching it for the first time. I think it just always was like my a part of me. I do have like one of my oldest memories, it's very distinct, is I was sleigh riding at like my parents' friend's house. And like I just was so excited to come in from the sleigh riding because they had a record of MGM's Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. And we were gonna put that on. And like that's one of my oldest memories. So that means the Wizard of Oz was already in my life. Like I don't remember it not being. So it's just one of those things that I feel like I don't think I know a moment not knowing the Wizard of Oz. Um and like it just kind of has always been um a Dorothy, I just saw myself in Dorothy. I felt like she was a little um different than the princesses and the other kinds of like, I guess, like heroines that young girls in the nineties were being fed, especially in the Disney princess age. She was different. Um, I just identified with her and now I identify with probably all the, everybody else, like, which is so fun. I think <laughs> yeah. you could always kind of find someone in Oz to speak to you and where you're at in your life, which is great. Especially if you go beyond the canon of just the wonderful Wizard of Oz, if you go beyond to the other bomb books, it just gets more rich and juicy. And there's just so much. I just feel like I'm learning American history through Oz. Um, I'm learning like uh, just, I don't know, like how, how I think Oz is all about like, you know, expressing yourself in ways that maybe are we quote unquote eccentric or different. And like, I love learning, meeting people who do that, like who live Oz in this life, you know, which is pretty cool. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing both of your experiences. Connor, tell us a little bit about your introduction to the movie. I actually, strangely enough, considering I host the Garland Gab, 
I came to the Wizard of Oz first, separate, nothing to do with the Judy Garland movie. I was actually a Wizard of Oz fan first, I think. Um, I remember my grandmother gave me, I don't know if they were in America, but they were, we call them ladybird books. They were like these little kids, hardback books. Um, there's like a series of them. So it was all the fairy tales or whatever. And one of them was the Wizard of Oz. And it was literally written in like, you know, Dorothy lived in Kansas, full Love stop. <laughs> you know, she lived on a farm, full stop, that kind of thing. So apparently I was obsessed with that book when I was little. And then I don't know, was it my mother or my grandmother got me a VHS tape, not of the MGM movie, but this cartoon version of The Wizard of Oz. It is on YouTube. It's like 25 minutes or half an hour. And seemingly, I basically broke the videotape from watching that so much. Yeah. <laughs> and one Christmas, we, uh, me and my mum were in a shop and here was the VHS of the MGM, Judy Garland, Wizard of Oz. And I was like, oh, can we get this? Can we get this? And she said, no, no, it's going to be on telly at Christmas. I'll, I'll tape it for you off telly. Yeah, same. Yeah. So she did. And there was great excitement that day. And it, it was <laughs> 90s. And I'm not quite sure because I vividly remember the Kansas scenes were still in black and white. They weren't even in sepia. Maybe it was pre the yes. restoration. Yes, I had that too. You had black that and Cool. And it came on anyway. And my dad is like funny, you know, and he's like, that's in black and white now. Will you watch that, Connor? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And my mother comes straight in going, no, it's color when she goes to us. <laughs> oh. Way to spoil it, man. I know, yeah. <laughs> so that was, that was my introduction to it. And, you know, some people say, oh, you know, they were scared of the witch or they were scared of the monkeys. I, I wasn't. I don't remember being scared of it or anything. And maybe because I knew the story, I knew it was happening. I just remember being like fascinated that it was real life. Like I wasn't watching a cartoon. I was watching it really happen. You know, that I remember that and the witch melting for some reason stuck with me. And that's my earliest memories of it. You know what? Her hands really caught me off guard. And this recent watch we just did yeah. The Wizard of Oz, like watching her hands in the melt mm -hmm. was a new experience for me. <laughs> her fingers. Yeah, like, how does she even like curve them? Themselves. I don't know how she does it. Very cool. Mm. <laughs> Iconic. Awesome. No, thank you so much for sharing your experiences, Connor. I, I kind of in the same boat as all of y'all as well. Like, I don't remember a time in my life where this movie wasn't playing a part. Like, I can't remember the first time I saw it. I can't remember anything like that. But my earliest memories are definitely related to The Wizard of Oz, whether it be, I definitely remember seeing Wizard of Oz on ice when it was on tour. Like, that's one of my earliest memories. I remember the witch skating by and everyone being terrified, but I was living for it. <laughs> Um, I shared a video last night of me opening uh, Christmas oh. presents, Christmas 1998. So I was, I had just turned four that year. So definitely pre that. And I got uh, the Wizard of Oz plushes from the Warner Brothers store. And I got a sing-along book that when you pushed a button, it played the music for the movie. Um, and then the ultimate, my own pair of ruby slippers, which were like red slippers that you could wear to bed, but they were just as magical to me in that moment because then I got to be like Dorothy. I got to go on adventures and go to magical places. So 
Um, it's definitely just always been a part of my life. And I think that's the case for a lot of people, a lot of people who have grown up with it, whether it be through the annual airings or whether it be a family member introducing it to them. It's, it's just a magical film that really, it's amazing that we're still talking about it uh, nearly a hundred years after it's come out. And it's just had such a beautiful journey. So that's my relationship with the movie. Chris, why don't you share your connection with the movie? Oh, goodness. When, when hasn't this film been a part of my life? It's the same as many other stories. Um, I, I, I have so many vivid memories of watching the film for many times. But the very first time that I saw it, I believe I was in Dominican Republic. Um, I was at one of my aunt's house. We, we went to visit her. And I remember bringing a copy of the film with me. And I tried to sit everyone down to watch the film with me, but nobody wanted to. So I just sat there glued to the TV screen, rewinding the part when we see Bobby Cochet open the door to, um, to the Land of Oz. And then we see Judy enter and then we hear that instrumental over the rainbow motif um, being played. And I remember just, I remember that the, that the whole sense of, of feeling like it was just like a warm hug being given to me while watching this film, watching that scene specifically. And I remember many times after watching the film, that's how it's it has continued to felt for me. It, it's my own security blanket, like Disney films are in a way. But this film, the fact that there's no, there's a lot of special effects, but it doesn't feel like it. It feels like you're in this world. It feels like you're you're running amok throughout this whole adventure. And it's, 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 it's a great adventure that we all want to be a part of it. And, and we can, we have Wicked on Broadway. We have, we have the Museum of Broadway in, in, in the city now. We, we have everything to our fingers. We even have Madame Tussauds, um, Judy Garland replicas in multiple, I'm not sure which one they're using now, but I remember, one year that I went for one of my birthdays, um, there was a Judy Garland, Dorothy Gale replica of her in her Judy Garland, in her, sorry, Dorothy Gale dress um, with the slippers. And I kid you not, I was gobsmacked. Of course, it didn't really look like Judy, but it was, you know, the, the principle of the thing. It was just the fact that you just stepped into this world and it felt like I was in Disney World for the very first time. I felt... I felt seen, and let's not forget the great movie right now that I brought up Disney World. Now I have to go into that rabbit hole of talking about the great movie ride. There's there are so many things that we that we have in our memories that we can just hold to our hearts, and yeah. So that was that was my introduction um, to the film itself. It's beautiful. I feel warm and fuzzy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Me too. And I think that's that's the feeling that this film gives you. It's that warm and fuzzy feeling. I mean, especially if you grew up with it, but it really is just, it's just such a beautiful film. And we're going to, again, dive into all aspects of it. The music, the dialogue, the scenery, the costumes, all of it. Um, so we're looking forward to talking more about it. Chris, why don't you... We can segue over to talking a little bit more about the film. Yes. Um, well, then I'm not sure if you have any um, fun facts about the film starting, but, um, you know, there were three screenwriters um, attached to this film. 
but I believe, and they were all three credited. Um, do, do you remember um, the names of, of the three screenwriters? I have them. But <laughs> Noel Langley is one. Noel Langley. Um, the woman is Florence. There's yeah, also yeah. Edgar Wolf, I believe. Yes. Oh, yeah. Female. Is it Florence? Oh, yeah. What's her name? <laughs> Pulling up Florence! the Google Docs. Florence. Just Florence. We forgot name. about Florence. Is it Florence? Florence Vassy for those chess fans out there. <laughs> they were the three credited. There was a bunch others that were on credit. Like, I think, yeah. um, is it Herman Mankiewicz was one of the mm-hmm. first to work yeah. on okay. it? Yep. I remember reading some. Got it started, but like Florence Ryerson. Florence Ryerson. There we go. Proud of myself Woo! with one part of that. <laughs> Florence, Florence Ryerson. She led a very mysterious life, and I think she also like. Oh, she had like a really cool divorce settlement. Like she Ooh. with her husband. I remember these things. Like you she's would. she's fierce. You would remember. She's that. like um Jennifer. Yes. Like, I'm taking the dog. I'm taking the dog. I'm taking the dog. I remember got her. Florence. I and Jennifer. Out of turn. <laughs> Florence You're creating this, these rumors. And there were um three, I believe three different directors associated with this film as well yes. um but only one four i'm four. sorry four there are and four only one of them was credited with the film we know our dear friend george kukor george some of us say george yeah. kukor big fan <laughs> and i think this is like this just speaks to the scale of this movie is like multiple screenwriters multiple directors like this was not an easy film to bring to the screen it was not easy and i think we've seen like obviously there's oz films that come before this film um and adaptations that come before this film that like just really show how difficult the story is i think to really to capture which is so funny because it's such a quintessential american story like I think that's why this film ends up standing out, though, is it just such a good job of really, again, conveying the story. And I also learned this while preparing for this episode. The sky is the only, like, real location that is used in the film that is from our world. Everything else is soundstage. There is nothing else that is on location. This opening sky sequence is the only thing in our world. So I, I just thought that that was cool. Oh, that's really cool. I guess I've never like, like thought, thought about, about that. Way. Yeah, that's yeah, so true. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, fun, one of my favorite fun facts about the directors um, goes to King Vidor because he survived one of the still the most deadly hurricane to ever hit our country of America, the United States, um, in Galveston. If you look it up on Wikipedia, it's actually quite horrifying. I think there was, they don't know how many people passed, but it's like some range of like 8,000 plus people died from this hurricane. Um, it was, I think, in the year 1900, I want to say. So, like, also the same year that The yeah, Wizard of Oz came out. Or 1899. It might be a little off on my history with this. But his survival of that hurricane is also in archives of people who have studied this hurricane. So, you can listen to him speaking about surviving it as a child. And, like, I really think that his survival of this horrifying storm adds to the realistic approach to the tornado mm-hmm. that 
did not need to have happened, especially with like music, like, you know, at the beginning when the writers were working on this, especially like Herman Mankiewicz, like we presence, they were like, you know, kind of torn between, do we go this like comic opera route or do we go more um, musical comedy? Do we go like, it just like was trying to find its group, but that tornado scene is still very real. And I don't know if that was something that was quite happening all the time yet, you know? I think it's still, I think meteorologists still say it's the most realistic portrayal in film of a tornado, even taking Twister and all the CGI of today. I think they still say that is the one that captures it the most. And I believe they've used that footage in other films as well when they've needed, um, when they've needed a storm. In many different documentaries, it's, it's that one scene when Judy is kicking the, the, the fence that that scene that that's always like transitioned into that real life sequence of like, oh, look, that's like a real life tornado. And not to jump sequences, but that when I was rewatching the film, that that felt the most real to me. I've always wondered how they did that. I don't know how like they put like the shot of the, the tornado in the background or Judy and the whole cast had to film it beforehand. I, I would love to know that if anyone has I any know the answer. Are you talking about the scene when she's trying to open the big gate? Yes, and that whole sequence during that whole that whole scene when they're trying to get into the into the um, storm cellar and oh okay, I feel like there's a little bit of um of rudeness given to Aunt M because she's trying to she's like where's Dorothy where's Dorothy and Anna is like get in the freaking cellar because nobody cares about her right now I'm like I always feel like she's always <laughs> taking the back seat I'm like she cares about this little she's girl. trying to save her yeah. <laughs> her <niece>. hello. <laughs> <laughs> So my understanding is the tornado was shot in miniature and then rear projected on the set. And some things are physically, oh. like some of the gates and things are physically there. And then the projection is behind Judy and the wind machines are going and all of that. And it's right. like a 1939 equivalent of a green screen. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. wind machines, things yeah. attached to wires so that they're it's flying off. And oh yeah, God. everything's going... Going in the direction it needs to. It's a controlled thing that they can reset and at the same time trying to perfect this chaotic environment that Dorothy's in in that moment. It definitely blew Terry away. Like, that it looked, definitely hard on our sweet Toto actor, Terry. <laughs> Those wind machines were powerful. Yeah. This is the end of filming, too. Like the tornado sequencing, all the Kansas sequencing was the last thing they did. Why? came on at that time because Victor Fleming was called away to Gone with the Wind so he kind of wrapped up the film which is also wild wild that you like go into the Kansas sequencing after doing all of Oz with a new director mm -hmm. castmates you've never seen like Aunt Em and Uncle Henry getting Charlie Grapewin and Clara Blandwick to come in like yeah, they're you in haven't even you, yeah they, like you haven't even seen them yet yeah coming on in it's, it's very interesting how that just feels funny to think about now we lost Connor the twister took him. Oh, oh he's back. Oh, we all just disappeared there. I'll edit that out. <laughs> he stayed there, though. Yeah, you stayed. Yeah. That's good. You stayed in, like, your little line state. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so getting into the opening sequence in the movie, yes. we have Dorothy, who is running down this country road with Toto, and she basically sets the initial conflict in the movie, which is Miss Gulch. Uh, Toto got into Miss Gulch's garden, and he chased her cat, and now she needs to tell Uncle Henry and Annie M. 
And she's trying to tell all these people in her life that something is not right. Something is something has happened and no one's really paying attention to her. No one's listening to her. They're very focused on their tasks. They're on a farm. They're trying to go about their day and take care of things. And they just don't really have time for her, which is leading her to feel not very heard. And really kind of setting the story of Dorothy is not like, she's not fitting in in this Kansas world. She's mm-hmm. not tied to it. She doesn't feel very connected to it. And she starts thinking about going on like just journeys and leaving Kansas potentially going over the rainbow. So this is where we're starting off our film. So what does everyone notice about these opening scenes, setting the stage for the story that is to come? I just wanted to say as a kid and as an adult, my just going back to the very beginning, I love that I love how it starts with that overture. The music. It's epic. The mm-hmm. overture and the like end music to me, like something in my heart, it like reverberates throughout my entire body. Dun, 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 dun. Like <laughs> that is just the craziest to me. Um, and I, as a kid, I don't think I'd ever seen a movie where the credits were in the beginning. That was new for me. Oh, I guess that's true. Um, I just remember very vividly <laughs> and I also like really looked forward that was one of my favorite parts as yeah, a kid settle in, settle in. yeah I was like oh, yeah. the wizard of Oz you know and then the the fade into her just like running down with her basket and with Toto I just that to me is one of my favorite parts um and the little dedication to the young the young at heart um I just love that I think that really sets the tone that okay we're in it feels like we're being kind of going to another world or another land or we're being transported ourselves um, is something that really I look forward to with every rewatch as an adult too. And that just to give credit, the um, conductor of the MGM Studio Orchestra was Herbert Stoatart. Hart, am I saying that right? Herbert Stoatart. I know it's like Stoatart, Stothart. Stothart, I think. Okay, yeah, thank you. I know it's a little Herbert Stothart, and yeah. he um, did win the Academy Award for Best Yay. Original Score. Yes. Academy Awards that the were won score. by the Wizard of Oz. The score is competitive year that beautiful. year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I actually remember getting the, um, it was, I was in middle school and I remember, um, elementary school, and I remember getting the DECA um, two disc extended, um, extended edition of the, with the green, with the green background and like that, that whole big, um, booklet type of um, type of feel to it. And I remember just having my little portable CD player listening to that score. And I was, it was like one of those days, um, my mom's boss actually, she used to work in um, the city and he brought me into the, I guess, at the FYE store that was down, that was downstairs in the, um, in the <laughs> throwback. Um, yes. <laughs> and I saw that and I was like, he's like, that's your favorite film, right? I'm like, yeah. So he's like, why don't I just get the soundtrack for you so you can listen to it throughout the day? So, you know, so I remember just that, that this listening to the score then and now still feels like, like I said, a warm hug because um, as I was, as I was listening to it, as I was listening to it as a kid and now it just, every time I go into the city, I always have to listen to some Rembrandt of the score, either through 
little parts of the score or through the, the Wicked soundtrack. It's just, it brings a whole new level of meaning um, to me, which is why I wanted to thank you guys for bringing up the overture because the, I don't know if you've ever heard in the little first few seconds of it, but you can hear the Glenda overture um, in there. So I was like, oh, look, that's a little so fairy godmother type of reference that, that, that she's seen as, but I see Glenda as a maternal figure. Um, throughout the film, but my my sequences, um, my in Kansas sequence, I just remember. I just as I was rewatching it, I kept thinking, what colors are Aunt M, Uncle Henry, and the farmhands wearing, like through their through their whole sequencing? Um, because it's not they can't be sepia. It, it can't just be like that color. It has to be like a maybe Aunt M might wear like a. Maybe like a light pink color. I'm not sure because it has to cool to see color photos of We have to. I need to see if there's um if there's stills. But I remember one word Jabberwocky being thrown in the in the script, which is kind of like a throwback. What's all this Jabberwocking when there's work to be done? Like a throwback to Alice in Wonderland, which is another story of trying to find oneself and. And both of those stories have some resonance with each other. Um, so, yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah. Did anyone else think actual Kansas was in sepia tone as children and that yes. there was no <laughs> color there? Yeah. I literally thought if you went into Kansas, it was sepia tone and that you would turn into sepia tone because of this film. That's so cute. <laughs> I have since learned that that is not the case and color doesn't exist in Kansas. That's adorable. Funnily enough, I always felt connected with this opening scene because that sort of um, laneway or kind of dirt road or whatever that she's running down, like we have those in Ireland that look exactly the same as Kansas. And I was like, you know, I may or may not have skipped down a few of those over the years, pretending to be Dorothy with my little Toto, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's so sweet. I love so, that. Yeah, so like it didn't feel, even though like it's Kansas and it didn't feel a million miles away wow. from reality. Yeah. That's cool. I think that is like, I think everyone has a little bit of that. Whatever that opening scene is, like we all have, even if we live in cities, growing up in cities, like there's something, there's a touch point there that I think like everyone can find something to connect with. And I think it, a lot of it is like wanting to be understood is like, Nate, what you so eloquently said of just like, I know I can name times when I was a kid now where you're just not understood the way you want to be. Maybe it's on you. Maybe it's on other people just not giving you their ear. But what I think really strikes me, and I guess I've never really spoken this out loud, is just like, because I don't know if films were doing this yet at the time of like, the Easter eggs, like, of everything going into Oz, like, making sure that Zeke has this whole moment, Zeke the farmhand has a moment where he's seen as a coward, mm -hmm. making sure that we have this moment with Hickory um, and Hunk that will lead into their brains and heart, like, there's a lot of that, the wicked old witch when she calls Miss Gulch that, like, mm -hmm. there's a lot of those little seed plants that I'm not sure if that was, like, something that other movies were Really having to do because it's such a unique bridge that they have to do between this real world and fantasy world. But I always thought that was smart on them to like 
It, it's beautiful it's, foreshadowing. It's, it's a beautiful it's, lesson in that like, foreshadowing. Yes. You're like, oh, yeah. that's going to be that person. As a kid, that I feels like it. a huge yeah. epiphany like, going off in your brain. Like you're like, whoa. Yep. So I've always, I think like silently appreciated that. I don't think I've ever spoken that appreciation out loud that they did that. But I think it just shows how innovative it was. I mean, yeah. if you were to look at movies from the earlier part of the 1930s, they're essentially filmed stage plays more than anything. Whereas this is nearly, we're moving into much more cinematic. Sophisticated. Yeah. Aspect, you know. Movie magic. Absolutely. <laughs> and speaking of movie magic, we now come up to our, um, one of my favorite quintessential scenes, um, Over the Rainbow. Um, the Over the Rainbow sequence. Um, does anyone have any rev resonating thoughts with this scene? Does anyone want to share their own little um, Over the Rainbow moment that they've had over the years? I think it's untouchable. I really don't think you get like any more perfect than that sequencing. I think I'm here for King Vidor today. I think I'm like yeah. here to be like, I will make sure he doesn't really I, get credited he doesn't get credited a lot for this film scene. um and it's iconic and he did take great pride i remember reading when we were doing our history deep dive with this that he takes really great pride of like not making it a static shot that he like really wanted yeah. judy to travel and like gave her like points to hit and i think that's so beautiful but like it really is so perfect even like we went through <laughs> Yesterday, Em and I were cracking up. So we watched it as if we were Terry, the Toto, being oh, like, love. being like, Carl, Carl, where do I look? Carl, Carl where do I look? Like, because Toto's a little like, doesn't know where to go in moments. He's frantic. It's great to track Terry's <laughs> yes. inner monologue. But like, it's so freaking cute. And I think I've said this now three times this weekend, which is hilarious. Um, I was in a family conversation the other day. We were talking about The Godfather, and I was like, I will always stay this, say this to be true. Like, Marlon Brando and Judy Garland are the only people who could share a screen with an animal, and you still see them. Because anyone else who shares a screen with an animal, you're watching the animal. It was like, Marlon Brando and The Godfather with that cat. You don't even know that cat exists. <laughs> and then, like, Terry is a scene partner with Judy. It's just, like, yeah, side beautiful side. love. Yeah. It's not upstaging each other. It's just, like, adding to this innocent magic, this yearning. It's just so, it really is so perfect. Like, and I always get a little afraid to say that about anything, but like the fact that we were like laugh crying watching it, also really enjoying being like, Carl, love, Carl, where do I go? Love Carl. Total. <laughs> I think that was Terry's inner monologue. For sure. Carl, Where's, do I look now? Where are my treats? Is there where a treat? Where are my treats? <laughs> Well, I love what you're saying about the movement because that's so true and I don't think I've ever realized it until you said that like that there is so much movement and whether it be the camera just slowly panning over or Judy just kind of like kind of like doing that like little walk that she does and she's just tottering a little bit okay. Terry's jumping up on the wheel next to her and it's just it's movement and it's funny because of the criticism of it from the 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 studio was, oh, this is slowing down the film. And it's, yeah. no, there's movement. You have, you you see it. And that's why it works so well. Uh, so I appreciate you bringing up the the movement. Of course. Yeah. And major props to Harold Arlen, E.Y. Harbour yeah, for writing good this. <laughs> good job, guys. They apparently like wrote it outside of a drugstore on a drive once. Because Harlan. Yeah. Right. 
Harlan did the tune outside of like an ice cream parlor. Out of like Schwab's yeah. drugstore. Yeah, or yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Going to have like a date um, with his wife. He's like, wait. Yeah, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, he, I said to Jameson. Mrs. Arlen, let's go to Grauman's Chinese. You drive the car. I don't feel too well right now. I wasn't thinking of work. As we drove by Schwab's drugstore on Sunset, I said, pull over, please. I don't really know why. Bless the muses. I took out my little bit of manuscript and put the down muses. what we now know is over the rainbow. The muses. Like, that's just so iconic. And I want to find this drugstore. Why have we never like, made a pilgrimage? We are muses. Like, <laughs> we those are muses. muses. Yeah, those muses. <laughs> like what? Um, yeah, we need that. to go to this drugstore. I don't we, think it exists. Yeah, we, I do think it's we'll gone. We'll find where it was. But I think you can find the site We will buy the this. lot and we will rebuild it. Um but yeah, I, that's drugs. what I was thinking about last night when we were watching it was Schwab's how, drugs. I was definitely thinking about Schwab's drugs <laughs> and what I would buy if I went there. No, um, probably an ice cream float for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but thinking about the, I think it was San Luis Obispo where they had the screening, and then Louis B. Mayer was like, "Absolutely not! We cannot have this song. Like Judy can't be singing in a barnyard." And just the fact that I just it see guys almost, in suits being like, "Get it out! Get it out!" Yeah, we can't have this. And how hard Arthur Freed fought to like keep it in and just yep, Harvard thank too. you so much yeah. that it's kept in because it's just so funny as a creator, as an artist, like thinking about the things that might, that could be cut that are just iconic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, what if there's no defined gravity? It's like, we need those, those things like this, that, this is that moment. And it, it will- really is this, the precursor to what we would consider the I want song that is so prevalent in modern is, musical yeah. theater, where it is that song that is happening very early in the show that really sets the tone of the show. Again, yeah, this is kind of when musical theater as we know it is in its infancy, like if we're considering Oklahoma as kind of the first quintessential like, modern oh, musical, yeah. where there's like a plot and it's driven by the songs. Like this really is setting the stage for that and i think this is what people would think of if you hear the i want song even when um i can't remember if it was alan Menken or howard ashman who talks about it when they were doing little mermaid they described the i want song as the heroine is in a barn and she sits down on a bale of hay and she just sings about what she wants it's like that's over the rainbow that absolutely is over the rainbow they took their nod from snow white like it really yep. was like looking at um, someday my prince will come was definitely yeah definitely like helped them get to where they needed to get so it's also like I, that's why I love this it's like no one just arrives anywhere like we're all like taking steps from other people's yellow brick roads you know and like then adding our own which is cool so yeah, yeah. Connor what's your relationship with the song obviously you're from Garland Gab Judy Garland like this is Daily. Judy Garland song oh god our song of the year I think I can I can probably only quote was it Lorna or Liza had said there's never been the more perfect marriage of a song and an artist than than Judy Garland singing over the rainbow it's just you know I can't I, I think I think you two have said it absolutely perfectly I don't think I can add anything else to that it's just it's and I think what's nice is that it was never set out to be it was never written to be right. the iconic thing that it's become today. You know, it was just, again, I think as Lorna says, it was a song in a movie and it just was the perfect song in the perfect movie. Mm-hmm. I don't think iconic things know they're iconic. No. It's all right. <laughs> no. 
you know? And it's just a song that I think, it's a song you can grow up with, and it has many different meanings in your life. When you're a kid, it is that song where it's like, oh, well, I want this. And it's like, when we're kids, like, we want things that we can't always get, so we're wishing for it. It's that. Um, and, like, with my own journey with the song, it just has evolved over time. And then... Um, growing up as a young queer person, it takes on a whole new meaning of, well, why can't I have this? Or what is, what's the, what's this thing that I'm longing for? And then finding out that like, yes, like this is a queer anthem. This is a song that means something to the queer community. And it takes on a whole new meaning there. And then even throughout Judy's life, it grows with her almost like when you take it to 1961 Carnegie Hall like that is love the film version love the film version and I love the Carnegie Hall version almost as like two different reasons over the rainbow is what I would play like I that was the song I danced to with my mom at my wedding um say was that your (laughs) yes but then you have the Carnegie Hall version that's like that is like almost like Dorothy at the end of the movie of like okay like i've overcome and i've seen a lot it's it's a vulnerable song and it's a strength song it just kind of depends on the context you're singing it it's just ah it's perfect i can't like <laughs> there are no words there are no words you're yeah. right and that, like and people who have sung sung it you know after judy especially if they're interpreting 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 it within the context of Wizard of Oz, like everyone has saying that ending differently some like fully belt to the ending some make it more of a vulnerable mix soft sweet voice like it's true like the song doesn't have i think like a specific prescription attached to it too like you can find yourself in it and in different flavors at different times like people have sung it at funerals. Like it is like a song mm. that kind of can like see every event. It encompasses many yeah. emotions. Mm. I don't know if you've ever heard. There is a bootleg recording of Judy. At, I think it's at the palace in 1967. So it's from the audience. It's not the greatest of sound, but she does over the rainbow and her voice gives out a, 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 a portion of the way into the song. And she very cleverly almost recites the lyrics almost as a poem to the music and oh, when i say was... it is the most touching thing you will ever, despite the bad sound quality it is the most touching thing you will ever ever hear and she somehow i don't know where or what or how she summons summons oh. the voice back for the final if happy little bluebirds fly and then belts the finale and it's just you're, you're literally sitting in your living room just like screaming far <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's a song that she took so seriously yes and she took and I, she took this whole movie seriously and that's why i get frustrated when i hear people like trying to be like oh the dark side of oz or whatever and like trying to go behind the scenes and finding all this stuff that like also like yes terrible things happened on the set of this movie absolutely yeah. however Judy loved this movie. We cannot we cannot paint any other picture. The way that she shared it with her children, the way that she talked about it. She's quoted. She literally is saying, like, I take this movie very seriously because I believe in the idea of the rainbow and I believe in trying to get over the rainbow. Um so I it's just it's such a powerful meaning. And it's it's like you said, Connor, it's a beautiful marriage between artist and song. It just really is. There was some, um, I don't know if you know, on her television show, there was some d- 
discussion, I think, for the first episode to finish it with some sort of skit or send up or something of Over the Rainbow. And this may be where that's coming from. But she was just absolutely not. This is not happening. I think she's quoted as saying there'll be no jokes of any kind about Over the Rainbow. I don't want people to lose this thing they have with Dorothy and like firm, you know. Mm. I respect that. You know, it's the same thing that I realize um, when watching, say, the Harry Potter films. Um, there's this whole controversy now with J.K. Rowling and every single actor who has stood up with, with the trans community is just saying, you know, if you, including the, the star, Daniel Radcliffe himself, he's, he literally said, he's like, if you have any resonance or have changed yourself throughout the process of this film of the of the film series don't let it diminish you it nothing has changed moreover some thoughts of one particular person do not uh, do not let that one person speak for you if the film if the film resonates with you in some way don't let that diminish it for you and i feel that's what judy's trying to say because there's no joking here whatsoever with, with either the film or that that one particular song with it in, with it in itself um there's just so much that you can take away from judy's performance as a whole that um that resonates with people nowadays um including with some of the current actors now like there's there's just so much that you can take away but from Judith's performance, we can see a lot of gravitas, including with the Kansas sequences, with the Kansas sequence in itself. When we first meet Miss Gulch, when we back into the film, when we first meet her, there's so much that you see in her eyes that doesn't need to be said. When they're taking Toto away from her and putting Toto in the basket, Terry, forgive me, Terry in the basket, there's, not, there's nothing to be said. You can see as she's tearing up, like, no actor nowadays can can command that gravitas, that 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 sense of 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 encapsulating the whole as a character. And I believe her performance is one that that is to be defined as one of the greatest performances that I've ever seen captured on film. So as I'm tearing up, so someone else. So. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, Judy's eyes just are in their own screen cred. Like, yes. yeah. like a little line, like yeah. Judy's eyes. Her <laughs> just eyes to separate. Are crazy, especially in the Witch's Castle sequence, which we're going to get to. So there's yeah. a whole. Yeah. So mm. wonderful. Any other thoughts on the Kansas sequence? Um, I know that I'm being mindful of our time, but any other thoughts on the overall Kansas sequence before we go to Oz? I just want to make a joke about Miss Gulch. I wrote a note saying Miss Gulch equals lesbian neighbor who just wants protection. That's <laughs> what I realized. And I was like, is this this witch? Miss Gulch is what happens when you do not embrace she, yourself. She's a 1939 Karen. Self-love. She's a 1939 Karen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. I know we all know the line I'm going to reference here, but I don't understand why it's not like in more drag queen's repertoire as a burn or a shade or something because when aunt m throws out the 23 years i've been dying to tell you what i thought of you and now being a christian woman i can't say it i think it's one of the greatest lines ever written <laughs> okay connor i have waited for the day that i can use that in a conversation yeah. it's it's gonna happen someday and 
it'll be perfect and it'll be great but yes iconic line it's the 23 years for me that's a long time do it 23 years the enunciation of that (laughs) They definitely what went to school together, Gulchi. They've known each other. Yeah. Um, like There's history. There's I've history. had words. Maybe Henry. <laughs> he also, when he has his little, he has like, he's painting the fence when she comes. One of my favorite moments is Gail when she comes up to the fence. And he's like painting it, but he kind of like, he's so funny, Charlie, Charlie Grapewin. He kind of has the paintbrush as like a weapon. As yeah. she's like coming, like like he like raises it. It's really funny. He has some subtle. Well, he tries to get the paint on her because yeah. he tries to close the gate so it like splatters on her, <laughs> yeah. but it misses, and he's just like, "Look it." He's sassy. I wonder what their relationship was. Oh, too. she better dog, eh? <laughs> yeah. Love him. Here for Clara and for Charlie, Clara and, Charlie. and of course Margaret. Margaret's Margaret. Margaret. Of course, Margaret. Oh. And of course, our boy Frank Morgan, oh, Professor, yeah, Professor Marble, is also there. We've got that whole scene. Poor little kid. Oh, she gets home. Yeah, that. he's great too in yeah, that scene. It's a great scene. I yeah. love this is a favorite scene of mine. This whole Kansas sequence. It's as so a kid, good. It goes by I just so loved. fast. Yeah, yeah. It's so fast, but it's like it's only like fifteen minutes. It's fifteen minutes what? of the movie, but we get so much information from it. Meanwhile, like sometimes I feel like I'm watching a movie in fifteen minutes, and I'm so like I have no idea what's happening in this film. Yeah. Like, Clear. Right. It's very clear. Right. Can we talk about Toro's um upholstered cage? Fabric upholstered cage? Oh, Doesn't yeah. that scream way to you? <laughs> oh, the little um the little doghouse? Yes, this oh, little cage. Yes, it says Toto. I never noticed that as a kid. Like that was something I noticed as an adult. It's cute. Same. And I noticed it more in one of the whenever they released a restored yeah. edition on DVD. I think that's when Wait, I first noticed it. That's it. Yeah, it could have been blurred. It's As a very kid, we didn't really moment. have restored versions. No. Yeah. We had grainy. Things. Grainy. Yeah, very grainy. <laughs> we have glasses now. Because, you notice? Because, um, <laughs> because of 90s TV. <laughs> Did you also notice uh, Judy's wallpaper, Dorothy's wallpaper in the background that they're poppies yes. on the wall? Cute. So many details. I noticed that as I was rewatching the film on Friday. I was like, "What? That's I had to zoom in like that. Those are poppies." Awesome. All right. So then Dorothy's house gets swept up by the cyclone, and she lands in Oz. And her first interaction is with Miss Glinda the Good Witch. And the Munchkins, um, which again is just amazing. It's a spectacle. The whole Munchkin Land sequence of color and music and dance and choreography, and it just is a. It's elaborate. So, and let's not um, forget the costumes. <laughs> the costumes. Every Munchkin having their own individual costume mm-hmm. made by Adrian. Mm-hmm. Gilbert Adrian. Adrian, we love you. Do we want to maybe shed a light on Adrian's um history with, with Oz costumes? I'm in itself, Sarah. Go MK, for do it. Wanna, do you want to do a little deep dive? Sure. I don't know where that is in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Adrian was really well known, you know, working at MGM for creating like very elaborate leading lady gowns, very um, stately and just elegant, I would say. Um, I mean, one of my, some of my favorite things to look at are just his sketches Mm -hmm. 
of leading ladies. Who are some of the actresses? Joan Crawford, I think. Joan Crawford. Norma Shearer. Norma Shearer. Yeah, Norma Shearer is a big one for yeah. them. Catherine Hepburn, Betty Davis, anything like that. Or those other studios. He was like the MGM, like glam guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. For all the glamorous leading ladies. So I think he had a he had a, a love for the Oz books. So he really like let himself have a field day. I mean, he said, we have a budget <laughs> and I will do what I want. I mean, the Munchkins, yeah, yeah. I think the Munchkins had somewhere between eight to 10 weeks of work. I might be a little off on my number there. And mm-hmm. it's not all because they were filming for those eight to 10 weeks. They actually weren't. They were called for costume fittings for like a huge I mean, that's chunk. Like hundreds. <laughs> and just like the testing, the time they had to test things, I think is exceptional. And the fact that they did allow like all these different iterations of things to happen and grow. I mean, some of my favorite things to see are like the Emerald City Citizens in costume tests in the haunted forest, in the dark forest, um, on the lot, because that's what they were filming at that time. But they would come up to like Victor Fleming, they take shots. It's just so cool to see that. So Adrian really did make sure each costume was very specific. There's lots of things that were thrown out to like, or just concepts that were thrown out. Um, but I think this time around, like I really was like bedazzled by the flower flowers and plants growing out of the munchkin's shoes i feel like i've mm-hmm. never talked about that enough like we were saying that i was like the munchkins we have not given enough credit to i mean their, you like, could spend flower pot existence you could spend embrace. hours like pause zoom in go one forward <laughs> one second forward and like how amazing i think we talked about this when we were in munchkin land on our pod like how amazing that all these little people who are hired for this epic musical movie get to have their own specific costume at a time when like also like there wasn't a lot of opportunities especially the opportunities that they would have would be often offensive right for like Mm -hmm. people of the time and this is just so much fun and there's so much attention and i know most of the munchkins later in life would speak nothing but praises about their time on this film um which is so beautiful so there's just a lot i think there too with the fact that they really allowed each costume to be different that did not have to happen they could have made it more uniform i mean the book yeah. is a blue costume right like blue uniform they, they went said they said it is one area i'm glad they deviated yeah. that they were again there was just more to see then it was more of a visual spectacle because again want to take advantage of the technicolor so let's have as many colors in the sequence as possible yeah i'm obsessed with adrian i want to deep dive more i just remembered he was married to there's janet a book. there's a good book on adrian yeah yeah there's there. a lot of research out there but i just remembered he was married to janet gainer fierce yes um, we think they had a very unique a unique agreement which yeah. we're like here for though i'm like i bet they both were queer and like it had a unique like, yeah, like, there is some understanding. layers to maybe pull back. Yes, yeah, like I'm here for that. Yeah, I'm like get it. Why not? <laughs> um, he's apparently the man who invented padded shoulders for Joan Crawford. Fierce. <laughs> okay, okay, Adrian. So depending um, on how you feel about padded so- shoulders, yeah, <laughs> um, might be directed upset. at Adrian. <laughs> yeah, and obviously we're. I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but since this is the scene where we first see the iconic ruby slippers. We have Adrian to thank for the design of the yes. ruby slippers. Um, and of course, we can get into that, how there's different um, pairs, how um, there's so many test shots and photos you can look up to see like pairs without the bows, pairs with the, with the bows. They cost like $2 with the, to make or yeah, something. They, they, so cost really they cost nothing, for nothing to, make. to make, but <laughs> he is the man responsible for this most iconic 
movie memorabilia and the evolution of the it. The evolution yeah, yeah. of it. So I don't think it can be overstated his like his name role. gets lost. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think his people would know lost, yeah. his name. And yet we go to the Smithsonian to see this pair of shoes that he designed and created. We probably should he bring it back to oh sorry, go on. Which is so cute. We probably should bring it back to our friend Noel Langley because he, I think he's yes. credited with scribbling out the silver yep. from the script and writing it. Yes. So he created the idea of the ruby slippers and Adrian made them into reality. Yes. There's some lore on that. I th- like, I think it was during the Noel rewrites and it may have come from Louis B. Mayer. There's like some like okay. stories, like what the conversations were. Because like, I think Louis would see anything that was like not bright enough and be like, change More. it. Technicolor. You know I mean? like, we got to take like, advantage yeah, like, of there's, these technicolor cameras. There'd be the men in suits being like, we need this instead. And so they would take right. those notes and then change right. it. But I wonder where Ruby specifically, like, I think it was because they thought it would look really smashing on yellow. Yeah. Like, I think that was the main. <laughs> and it does. It, it does. It I was taken aback last night. But I, like, I still well, think like, were they ever like, um, Purple, like you know what I mean. Scarlet, <laughs> I guess not. Like I guess it's just chartreuse. Like, ruby sounds so good too. There's so there, there's alliteration. There's a, there's there's a jewel. There's like a gem. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's also this like Americana image as well, because then you have Dorothy wearing red, white, and blue. I'm from Kansas. <laughs> like she is there, and she is, and she's always worn it. Even in the book, her yeah. bonnet is red. So yeah, she's always right. yes. she's always been Americana, even from like that first Denslow sketch. I did not realize that till like probably two years ago. I was like, she's wearing red, white, and blue. I was like, she's always <laughs> been. She's always been America. It's so cool. American yeah. dreams walking about. American dreams. <laughs> we have to pay respect to Glinda's dress. I mean, Adrian as well. Oh, yes. uh, fabulous! So what a cool. moment. What? I want her dress so badly. Oh, I know. Last time I was North like, Star. where is it? The North Star. He like purposely put like North Stars As in, a the, in the costume so she would be like this guiding presence, mm-hmm. which is like, yes, intentionality, just like yeah. embed it into this dress. And I that, mean, that oh. was a recycled dress, they think. That's what, yes. There's no, like, it, it is. There, 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 are, there is a film um, side-by-side comparison using another film that Adrian did, I think right. a year before, or a couple of years before. Yeah, the, it was you never know, like, work and then he redesigned it specifically for Billy Burke's character. Yes, that's the rumor. It's, I think there's mm-hmm. still some, like, because the dress is now lost. Yeah, we don't know. This dress did not get saved. Or it was turned into other dresses. It was turned into something else, yes. It never stayed as Glenda's Or Debbie dress. Reynolds stole it. Or <laughs> Debbie Reynolds. Yeah, it's, it's in her collection. Leave it to Debbie to steal everything. I love Debbie. We love Debbie. Someone actually right, messaged yeah. us, DM'd us on Instagram, the girl and Gab, asking that question, is the Jeanette McDonald dress from San Francisco Billy San Francisco. dress? Yeah. And I, was like, I, I don't think it is personally from seeing the photos. Yeah, there's some thoughts that it's not at all. Like, it's it's definitely a rumor because they can't prove it because nothing exists. So. Right. Because there's, I am. Friends with I can see it. I, I, I can see yeah. the. Yeah, you could definitely see it. But I, I'm friends with this other guy on Facebook, and he seems to be a Glinda fanatic. And he did a very. I love him. Yeah, <laughs> did this. He's he re, reproduced Glinda's dress, and he goes to DragCon oh, and everything. That's what I, I need a second. Is he the one who's also the 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 um officiate for 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 weddings as well? Yes, I think so. <gasps> Excuse me. Explain yourselves. Yeah, what? Why a Glinda officiant? I I want I want Glinda to 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 speak to to give me to, to you know 
to yeah. help about. Yes. Yeah, so there you go. There you go. Uh, Josh, Josh, is it Joshua? Oh, that's cool. Wait, we, we should probably say Oh, that. yeah. Em has to share this. Sorry, this is, cool. this is kind of a backtracking since we're talking about um, maybe queer connections to The Wizard of Oz. Um, one note about Adrian. So Adrian married Janet Gaynor on August 14th, 1939. Janet had been so unmarried. Right after Oz. Right after Oz. Janet, sorry, Janet Gaynor had been unmarried for six years since her previous marriage had ended. Apparently, this relationship is this a term has been called a lavender marriage? Oh, yeah. yes. Yep. Yes. Yes, Since Adrian was openly gay within the film community while Gaynor was rumored to be gay or bisexual. But they went on to say they were, happily, they were happily married and they remained so until his death in 1959 and they had a son named Robin. I'm obsessed. Brilliant. Lavender yeah. marriage. Lavender, oh, marriage. lavender, lavender marriage. marriage. I love that color lavender. Yeah, it's like a mixy color too. Like yeah. it's like a not pink, not purple. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I love it. Well, yeah. I think that was the original. That was one of the original colors that people associated with. Right. Um, with the queer? With the queer community as a whole. Right. Um, right. It was like the first color before, obviously, because we don't really get the rainbow so I think that is what it is, but very Lavender cool. Marriage, I did not know that Lavender term. marriage. That's cool. That Gale Cinema, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Teaching us. Well, so while we were talking about Glinda, yes. how do we feel about her line? Lawrence <laughs> <Dorothy>. Sigfeld. <laughs> Sorry, I'm interrupting. That's oh, that is okay. Um, how do we feel about her initial line to Dorothy? Because I feel like in recent years on TikTok, <laughs> on Instagram, Facebook, you see the memes. Are you a good witch or are you a bad witch? Me? I'm not a witch at all. Witches are old and ugly. Well, I'm a witch. You're beautiful. Only bad witches are ugly. That's a very paraphrased version. But is Glinda shady? Is Glinda just stating a fact? What are our thoughts? I, you know, I watched Judy's face specifically this time just to be like, wait, like, is there any, like, she doesn't have a yeah, moment of think, awareness of like, wait a second. There's no wait a second. So I don't even think they, both of them took a wait a second. Like that sounds. No, not at all. That if we break this down, I'm basically saying you you're could, ugly. You could be a bad witch. <laughs> I'm no, I'm calling you. Like I asked you if you're a bad right. witch because yeah. I think you're ugly. Because you could. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it. I don't think they had the wherewithal yet. No. But it's hilarious now. It, it's funny in hindsight. And why'd you ask it me truly about bad witch? <laughs> I know it's, it's great. so good. Yeah, I'm giving Glinda the benefit of the doubt and thinking that it's a little bit like you know if you walked in a room and somebody is sleeping and without thinking you go, "Are you awake or asleep?" I wonder is it just like <laughs> that? Right. Yeah. I interpret it as like okay, so all good witches are beautiful. And bad witches could be ugly, but they could also be beautiful, a la Snow White, where the Wicked Queen starts off being very beautiful. And that was the direction they wanted to go in for the Wicked Witch before ultimately settling on, nope, she's got to be, she's got to be a hag. she got to be right. looking rough. Yeah. So. <laughs> and we have to give an uncredited praise for Gail Sondegard. Oh, yeah. Who who first was the first choice for the Wicked Witch of the West? 
and they I wasn't ready to make myself look ugly in those days. Nope. I just got Academy Award. You're not messing with my face. Absolutely not. (laughs) I mean, she probably it was probably the smart choice for her. It was. It was absolutely absolutely correct. And like we need it, Margaret. Margaret is everything. Smart choice for her, smart choice for the film because we it Margaret Hamilton is the quintessential villain in this film hands down change the game yeah yeah and gail never regretted it she didn't like no. there's no like interviews with her later in life being like did you regret turning that down i don't think she no. it really was not like what she wanted to be doing the photos are great though because there are test photos oh those her, test photos you know, are like magic now yeah. to like look at especially the ones where they're like can you try a little bit of the ugly she's, she's like, okay half-heartedly trying <laughs> to be haggish but like looks fierce still and like I love the like I think um our friend of the Wizard of Oz history account that's on Instagram um posted the one where she's like making muscles recently <laughs> and like trying to be like scary and it's just so half hearted. We're like, Gail, it's Gail, time. it's okay. It's time, Gail. It's okay, honey. Move on. <laughs> yeah. But I think Margaret's dedication to this role really makes the film that's what makes this film more serious, I think, than comical. Yeah. Because there is that looming danger that is there. Whereas if she was kind of like a pantomime type villain or whatever that was over the top, kind of like what became in the MSG production. Kind of what it is. Years and years later. The stage versions are this, yes. Yes. Basically. Yes. Whereas the film so is like no performance as as the Wicked Witch was more comical and mm-hmm. yeah. which makes sense for stage, but this I'm so glad like what you said, yeah. me, that it's like this in the film. Yeah. She's also, I think, Margaret herself is like the MVP of MGM Oz, just with what she endured, especially in this sequencing where she had, what was it, third degree burns? Yeah. She yep. dealt with third degree burns. She was treated miserably by the studio um, with her injury. Um she almost had another injury that she fought to get herself taken out of a stunt because she's like, I'm the only caretaker of my child. Um, and she yeah. wanted to, she was going to walk. Son. She was going to walk at one point. And she, I, it's, it's empowering to see a woman of 36, I think she was playing this role, um, yep. stand up against the studio also. It, like they also were seeing how valuable she was because she was quite good in this film. Um, so they would have had to reshot everything that she did anyway. Yeah. So I think they realized but she also being a kind kindred spirit to Judy, like during the film, like everyone loved her and she kind of like embraced, I think like where she stood in this world. Like she like was humble and also like fought for herself when she needed to, which is, I think there's something there. Like there is like, I'm always about fight for yourself, but also know when it's your turn to fight for yourself. Right, you can't always. Um, You can't, yeah. Like, you know, so it's beautiful to like see her as like, I don't know, like a pioneer in that for women, especially at a time yeah. where, you know, studios would see you as a dime a dozen. It was a machine, mm-hmm. yeah. you know. And again, someone who really champions this movie as well later in life. Yes. And all the, like, it's like you said, she's experienced this trauma, these horrible things that happened on this film set. And she's still like, I'm so glad that I did this movie. I love this movie. And like, yeah. people should see this movie. And I, I'll never get over. I love in the 50th anniversary documentary with Andrew Lansbury, where they show the clip of her talking about, again, auditioning for the film or her agent calls her and is like, oh yeah, there, there's the Wizard of Oz. And I think I got you a part. And she's like, oh, what part? And he's like, the witch. 
And she's like, the witch? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, what else? I'm like... Well, I, I need to see if there's actually that, that whole conversation. I need to find out if that's a real thing because... It's gotta be somewhere because they didn't film it just something. for that documentary. Like, that's because like candid. I believe that is also used in yeah. the, in the audio commentary, a it, little bits and pieces. Because I remember there was one part when Margaret was talking about, oh talking about getting the film and she was she went to a ball game with her agent yes and she unbeknownst to her miss louis b mayor was there and he waved to her and she was like hi and she's like and she talked to me she's like who's that and they're just like oh maggie that's mr mayor and she's like well what town <laughs> i love it yes but um it's also i, I as we're like kind of exploring queer themes in this film as well, I think the witches do get brought up a ton because there is, especially when we're talking about women and how women are portrayed. On the one hand, we have Glinda, the ultra feminine, like lightness, brightness, being butterflies. Again, as this idea, like this is what a woman's supposed to be. And then you have the wicked witch who is in darkness and appearances aren't everything. And it just, again, is playing into that, who do we want people to be? And this dichotomy that comes up for folks as well, that I think is a decision queer people also face. Like, again, like, what path am I going to go down? Am I going to be the good witch or am I going to be the bad witch? Mm -hmm. Am I going to be the helpful one or am I going to be the one that's maybe undermining this society and I'm looking out for myself. Wow. Yeah. That's um, totally what she does. Yeah. Which like, you know what? There's some power in that, that I do applaud with the wicked witch. I'm like, yes, girl, you go Burn after down what you the want. System. Burn down the system. Then I'm like, but you're taking everyone with you. Ah, yeah. stop. Meanwhile, Billy Burke says, I was a new kind of actress, carefree and redheaded. And I had beautiful clothes. You could go that route as well. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful gowns, beautiful gowns, beautiful clothes. I was carefree. <laughs> I think Billy Burke wasn't really acting. I think she was. Oh, just I like, love her. This is me. This is real. Well, this Billy is me. was also in her era of I. My husband's gone. I make the money and yeah. like give me the roles, give me the opportunities. Here we her, go, her everyone. And she was like, "Y'all don't, y'all. I'm 53 and I look great." That's like she yeah. also when I learned that she was 53, I was astounded. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's it's just it's she's fantastic and like again like I don't I can't see anyone playing Alice playing this role in no, this film I think she not Fanny Bryce not Fanny Bryce oh, no, uh, no. Fanny Bryce um, what a die to see oh, like a stage version of Billy Burke as Glinda Fanny Bryce as the Wicked Witch oh my God what well, that'd be great I think she would have been great as either like I think she Fanny would have been a funny Glinda like just yeah. really hilarious. she would have been a good Good Witch of the North had they kept that a separate character yes. kind of like oh, a yes. kooky little it's that vibe like hello the like um the chalkboard on her I nose I was just making a spell yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so all right any other thoughts on Munchkinland before we begin our journey. I just wanted to give a little, uh, another little second to talk about Margaret's entrance. Um, yes. In the film, we have, I kind of want to do a little deep dive into that whole sequence where we meet the Wicked Witch. The one thing that I really love about this film is that just because she's wicked doesn't mean that her green skin is talked about in this film. I don't believe it's ever uttered. No, no, it's film that, um, that she's that that she, that her skin is the color green, 
And that's what I find so inclusive about this film and so resonating that that it's not brought up. Not why. Yes, she's a different skin color, but that doesn't deteriorate from what she is as a person. And that's what I believe Margaret has tried to do throughout her years, especially if everyone remembers the Mr. Rogers episode when she was on. She's like, she's just a a woman who just who just lost her sister. She just wants to grieve while also trying to get her own fabulous pair of shoes. Yeah. You know, it's honestly owed, it sounds like. Like, you know, like they are her shoes, probably. Yeah. Like technically so- she is next of kin. Like she probably is, she is meant next to have them. Yeah. But- Next again. And just- but it's interesting what you bring up about the skin too, Christian. That like no one really talks about it. But also the Winkies also have green skin yes. later on, the Winky Guards. And we don't know if like is that their actual skin or is this like right. is it supposed to be makeup? Like does she want them to look like her? Or like there's a lot that like you and can think about of that dynamic. And there's talk sure. about that whole sequence too later on. Yeah, yeah it, that's all interesting. I've been thinking about that a little bit. But just to give a shout out um, for that entrance, Christian, that you brought up, it's not Margaret Hamilton that you see right away. It yep, is yep, it's her. It's her. Hey. Who also suffered horrific injury on yes. this film that it does not get talked about enough. Um, that happens later, so we'll we'll bring it up when uh-huh. it, when we hit that, just because it yeah. is like pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, there's so many. There's so there's a lot yeah lots of injuries and a lot of injuries to people that like couldn't like you know they they didn't feel the safe to even speak out about it so at least we live in a time now where i think things do get seen and like there is there's there are unions there are people who Mm -hmm. care a little bit more about safety than at this time Mm -hmm. it's pretty it didn't seem like much of an issue like if you're able to come to work come to work like you know whether you're in a cast or not aka Brilly Burke, who had a cast on her foot while she was still in that whole Munchkin sequence, I believe. Yeah. Um, Taken away by ambulance directly from the set when she exactly. injures her ankle. In Margaret her Hamilton probably having to drive herself to the emergency room. <laughs> Literally her face burning off. Yeah, her friend drove her. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's terrible. And I also wanted to give a little questionnaire as to, um, we have to, I feel like I want to talk about the, um, the egg munchkins, like what? What is that? <laughs> the hat ones. The sleepy the heads. Hatch- what? I'm like sleepy heads. This one. Maybe they just. But if they're sleeping, why are they coming out of eggs? Yeah. It looks comfy. Not gonna lie, I, I would do it. Love it. Yeah, I was like that. I like so to be easy. very nestled when I sleep. Like you, you can, can only the mouth. Like I think I would thrive in this egg. Yeah, same. <laughs> I'm here for. I I've just love the connections with nature to it. Yeah. Every, every munchkin like that seems to be the theme of munchkin land is like nature and being kind of part of the fairy land part of the scenery and oz itself there's so much nature there's so much greenery there's so much flowers all around especially i noticed this um jumping ahead in the uh the apple orchard sequence with the tin man and there's so many flowers placed around the tin man's house and placed around um the whole that whole sequence i'm like that's that's a lot of dedication Mm -hmm. and the matte paintings i also wanted to Mm -hmm. give a little brief 
conversation about the matte paintings too. There's so much beauty that you can just take away from it, especially if you noticed it in the apple orchard sequence, again, jumping ahead, you can see little bits of fog at the bottom of the, of the matte, of the matte painting. Like it adds to that level of scenery where it's like, yes, you're in a floor, you're in a, you're in a little, you're going to be in a little part of a forest soon, but it's just creeping in. And I love that little creep, creeping in moment. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> Hi, I'm Andrew Rimby, the host of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, a public humanities podcast where I interview writers, scholars, performers, and artists. Episodes air on Mondays. And I'm married to Pippi, host of True Crime and Academia, an Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. True Crime and Academia is a true crime podcast focused on crimes committed by or to those in academia. Episodes air on Tuesdays. Make sure you follow Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Become a subscriber to get unedited video interviews and our merchandise at patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. When you're listening to our podcast episodes, imagine that you're in a cafe eavesdropping on our conversations. Enjoy. Hey there, I'm Tara. And I'm MK. And we are your resident Good Witch hosts of Down the Yellow Brick Pod. Preserving and peeling behind the curtain on the wonderful world of Oz. Come for the Oz fandom. But stay for the company that's got you on your loneliest of yellow brick roads. Through our juicy conversations, rabbit holes, and many Oz metaphors as medicine on the pod, we have tried to make sense of the wild times we live in and have traveled back to the turn of the 20th century. To the heyday of MGM Studios. To a super soul 1970s smash on Broadway. The dark fantasy film era of the 80s. 90s ice skating and musical touring shows. A 2010s reality TV search for Dorothy. And much more, traveling through the decades as we cover all things iconic and obscure Oz. For us, Oz has become a portal to continuously revel in history and human connection, holding space for this magical land we all have ingrained in us and the multi-layered rainbows we each are. You can find Down the Yellow Brick Pod wherever you listen to podcasts, on Patreon for exclusive content, on Etsy for show swag, and on IG for an accompanying scrapbook to our episodes, community, and our guests. Can't wait to hang over the rainbow. See you in Oz. All right. So obviously, (laughs) obviously, it's not just Dorothy on her journey to the Emerald City. It's also her three friends, the Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Cowardly Lion. I do find that everyone has a friend that they're particularly attached to. So I thought it would be nice if everyone would share which one they find attachment to. So why don't we start um, start with uh, Tara and MK. Who are your <laughs> who are your friends that you're attached to? Who are- we already know, but for our audience. I mean, my friend and I go a little deeper than friends. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, so yeah, Dorothy meets the Scarecrow, played by one Ray Bolger, who I have always just, I guess, had a crush on, yeah, as a little kid, Thank which you. is funny. Um, I just find his energy and his performance quality to be so endearing and charming. 
just Ray as a person as well as Hunk. Like he just, yeah, he seems goofy and fun. Um, I feel like we'd get along. And the Scarecrow, I think I relate to the Scarecrow a lot just because he comes across as, I don't know, like lighthearted and maybe silly, but he does have a lot of thoughts and like depth beneath the surface. He is actually, not that I'm this person, but he is the character who really is like, hey, I have an idea. Like I actually know what we should do, which is kind of the irony of he doesn't have a brain, quote unquote. Um, I just love Ray Bolger. He was a vaudeville guy, Broadway guy. Um, I think he only really like briefly was in Hollywood land until he was like, you know, I'm going to go back to New York. I actually like Broadway and the stage more. Um, And I just felt like suffocated by a screen. Yeah. And his energy really does. I mean, he can do anything, but his energy on stage is I think where he belongs. Um, I love that he was known to like dance every day, even into his seventies. I think he passed away in the eighties. Yeah. He was the Um, last. Uh, the last of the like principal cast yeah um and i just love their relationship you know um i know at the end she has her line of like i will miss you most of all which there's all those memes of the lion and tin man being like wait what that's that's not cool but you know there is that first friend you meet when you're in a when you're going on a new journey or someone who you're like oh you're my person okay like you're my safety and i just think that he's always looking out for her and i just love their relationship in the movie and Judy and Ray's relationship yeah, felt very so just, I love that footage of them, you know, just laughing off screen and it just warms my heart. Well, first is the worst. Second is the best. Oh so my god! Mine is the Tin Man. Way to ruin my moment. Mine is Mr. Jack Haley, <laughs> which could have been Buddy Epson, just to give a little love yes. to Buddy Epson. As many of us know, Buddy Epson was originally a cast actor to play the Tin Man. Well, he actually was supposed to play the Scarecrow. There's so much There's drama. There's a lot. <laughs> but just to keep it short, um, he was about two weeks into the filming, like in the Thorpe era, who was the first director, Rick- Richard Thorpe, and he suffered a toxic reaction to the paint and almost died and was hospitalized hospitalized for several weeks after and MGM fired him while he was hospitalized. It was a very traumatizing event. He had a full on uh, panic, nervous breakdown, like when this happened. So he also kind of pulled out from Hollywood. And then of course, like it just was, it was a very damaging life event for Buddy Epson, who would later go on to have a very amazing career. You might know him from Beverly Hillbillies. You might know him from the Davy Crockett series for Disneyland. He had an awesome career following later in life, but in Phenomenal dancer, which a lot of people don't know if you look at old videos of Buddy Epson. He's amazing. Yeah. So, yes. So, Jack Haley goes in to replace him. And something to presence is Jack was like, wait, what happened to Buddy? Like, Buddy's really good. And no one said no one anything, anything to him. But Jack was no the kind warning. of guy who just was like, this is a job. I'm here. Let's go. And, like, very, like, he reminds me, I think, of my dad and my husband a little bit, which <laughs> is just always funny. Like, just kind of like, doesn't really BS. He's not upstaging anyone ever in this film. Mm-mm. I have to say that for Jack. He never is trying to take any anybody's bits. Like, we have some hams and Ray and Bert. We do. We've got some ham <laughs> the sandwiches. Hamiest. I love We them. have ham sandwiches with mayo and honey banana. Like, you know, and the, oh, the two of them. Especially Especially Bert. And like he is such a great straight man, like yeah. the middleman. He's so good he's at it. He's fun to watch, actually. He's really he's subtle. Just reacting. And he always broke my heart even when I was a kid with his last line of like now I know I have a heart because it's breaking yeah. and that like it's like to Oz bears and bears and bears like his vaudevillian <laughs> sensibility it's just charming to me 
Um, They're both Boston Boston guys. Like, yeah. they both have very thick accents. And like Jack Haley Jr., his son has done a lot of work also with making sure like this movie gets has gotten preserved and like also the stories go on. Liza. Married Liza for a second, connecting <laughs> some families. Daughter. You know, like there there's been some cool history to follow up with Jack afterwards. So I've always been like that the regarding love and awe. Just I've always been a fan. Always been a fan. also just a fun like again the Tin Man is a masculine character that's based around emotion and yeah. he's crying and like he's not afraid to cry even though he's gonna rust but he's very in touch with his emotions he's not afraid of a rub rub here <laughs> no he is not he is in a compromised position and he's just tapping that he's just like Woo, okay it's so good that i think is the queerest moment of this whole it's, film it is for a me. queer moment i'm like i love that <laughs> that wins for me that has <laughs> never registered with me until now <laughs> You can't unsee it. You really can't. It's magic. Oh. He needed there, you know? Oh, Jack. It's also worthy to note he, like, kind of complained a lot. Oh, it was work. <laughs> it was work for him. He and was that miserable. Costume, that costume was horrible. He had eye infections left and right. Like, they, but he did go through it. Like, he also didn't, he dealt with some they all did it. Like, bad stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They we all know had there it was really a lot of makeup and yeah. costumes. Yeah. That makeup is crazy. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Connor, what team do you fall on? Team Scarecrow, Team oh. Tin Man, Team Lion? I'm Team Lion. Yes! <laughs> Tell us about your love of Mr. Bertlar. Why Why the lion? I think it's because when I was a child, I was fascinated with the idea of having like a lion as a friend. Oh, I don't know weird. why, and I think it was... <laughs> Is it in? Is it? It is in the book. Is it where where when they're in the Emerald City and they have to stay overnight in the Emerald City? Doesn't the lion keep guard outside Dorothy's room in the book? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, Yeah. that bit in particular. I just remember that when I was little, reading that, I was like, I would just love to be friends with the lion. And I know that's whatever, but like his, but Bert Lars' performance is. I think I'm just more drawn to it because it's the comedic performance. Um, and again, he had his troubles with that, what was it, 90 pound suit that was made for real lion? <laughs> like, you know, I can't imagine under those lights in that thing. That's right. It could not yeah, have been good, no way. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. There wasn't Febreze back then either. <laughs> no. <laughs> and it's the real, it's the real lion fur as yeah. well that is used That's for it, so and fun. which... I believe people say that as if MGM ordered two lions to be killed yeah. to make this costume. I'm pretty sure they found the pelts had already been like, oh yeah, yeah, they were out. Like, let's just get that straight, people. Like, MGM was not like not murder lions. No, they didn't. No. They did not go. For I believe. Them. Yes, <laughs> it was like two rugs that they had found that had already yeah. been, and then they turned it into the costume. Wild, but... still crazy for <laughs> him to wear that and still wild lights. Yeah. All right, Christian, who are you? What team are you on? Goodness. I think I'm going to have to go with um, Team Scarecrow. Oh, we're outnumbered now, Connor. (laughs) I guess. We will be the deciding. Ray's whole um, performance as the Scarecrow just, it just has like a sort of um, childlike essence to it. And he brought that, like, he wanted to make sure that 
not just adults, but children can be made aware that, yes, this is a fantasy world, but you're, you can feel things. You don't have to feel guarded by your emotions. So, and also don't have to think so much, you know. <laughs> so growing up, I would have definitely been team Scarecrow. As an adult, though, as an adult, though, I think the Tin Man stands out to me more because I just, I like, because I realistically understand that I would be the Tin Man. Like, that is who I would be. Me too. In this dynamic among the friends or whatever. I mean, if you throw in all the four of them, like, I'm, I'm Dorothy, everyone get out of the way. Um, but, but, um, but no, the Tin Man, just because, again, I love. The connect. I love that he's a masculine character that's values emotion and values love and is a hopeless romantic. And I think that's kind of where I fall more as an adult. So that's cute. Yeah. He also will do a soft shoe without you requesting it. Like you, he'll just love a shot to dance. Do you do <laughs> that? <Love it. laughs> you know, just at the drop of a hat. I also die when um they're walking down the hallway to the wizard and the lion's freaking about someone pulling his tail and he's just like. You're pulling your own tail, like I know. <laughs> he's matter always of matter of fact. Yeah. It's yes. Yeah. Love. And I think again, presencing that allegedly this is one of the possible sources of the term for queer people, friend of Dorothy. Yes. Yes. Again, Dorothy accumulating this collection of interesting eccentric people who people could see themselves in, whether it would be masculine men who are maybe more in touch with emotion or. Again, people who would be classified as quote unquote sissies and being very effeminate and people just seeing themselves in that. And this idea of here's this person who is just accepting them wholeheartedly for who they are. They She doesn't care that like, okay, the scarecrow doesn't have a brain. The tin man doesn't have a heart. The lion's a coward. She's just like, well, why don't you just come along and like, let's all kind of be on this journey together. And there's just that warm, inviting feeling that I think drew people to Dorothy as well, because she's just this person who wants to help people while she's on her own journey as well. Also want to shout out the time when I saw the touring version of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. There is a line in the musical when they're about to see the wizard that Dorothy says, I'm Dorothy, the small and meek. And I think it's the lion who comes up after her and says, and we're friends of Dorothy. <laughs> yes. No one in the audience laughed except me, um, because I think I was the only one who caught what they were trying to say. Yes, yes. In that moment, so <laughs> cute. Yeah. That's super cute. Presencing that, yeah. But that um, yeah, yeah. And watching it, you know, even yesterday in hindsight, just knowing the queer community's connection to Judy Garland and what she means as a gay icon, and um just what she means to the queer community and the connection with Oz, I think just, it's so special. It can't be overstated. Absolutely. Also, I think the last thing that we're going to touch on with our time together today is we're going to fast forward a little bit, kind of towards the end of the movie and with Dorothy and the lesson she learns because she's in Oz. Oh, um, and it's that final that that moment where they ask, "Well, what did you learn, Dorothy?" And she's, we don't know this. We don't understand this it. This is sometimes. a big moment. We go yeah. like a little crazy with this speech. This is a big moment, and it's um, 
I'm glad to talk about it again. It, was, it wasn't enough to just want to see Aunt Em again, and that if I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard, because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. Is that right? That's all, all there is. That's, that's all, all there is, it's super, sim- it's super simple. What do we make of it? That is How a- do we interpret it? It's, I don't know. Like, I feel like I sometimes I'm like, what is she saying? <laughs> I hear that. <laughs> but I think like yesterday we both like closed our eyes. Do you notice that when she said that we were both trying? Because we've heard it so many yeah, times. Yeah. We're like, we were both trying to like take it in a different you almost way. Have to, honestly, the more I think about it, the, it the, the worse about. it gets. Like what <laughs> the worse it gets. What I think about it, at least in 2023 is it connects to what Glinda says. You've always had the power, my dear. You just yes. have to find it for yourself. I don't think we, I, I don't think I can, it works better if I don't take it so literal, but yeah, it it's almost like, me. yeah, I don't think it's saying don't leave your backyard. Don't travel. No. Don't explore. I think it's just saying <laughs> no matter where you be are on your journey, <laughs> be a hermit, be a hermit, um, be a recluse, no matter where you are on your journey or what you're looking for, like it's already inside of you. It's already a reflection. So it's, it's like, you are what you are. Like you are. Me, I am what I am. <laughs> Another great yes, <laughs> show. Um, it's y'all. Does that is that kind of starting to gel? Like it's already inside of you. You have the power. Can I piggyback? Yeah, piggyback. I think what hit me last night rewatching was like okay. Also, the fact that like you can't really ever run away from what is meant for you. Yes, like you just can't run away is. from it. You can't lose it. Yeah, like like it's always there for yeah. you to look at and it doesn't matter your actual physical location. Like I think that was helping me with the whole backyard metaphor that she uses. Yeah. Yeah. Um so that felt real last night or I was like face your problems, don't run from them because you're just going to be running your whole life. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah. That's my 2023 version. <laughs> right, I, I know. We've we've said yeah. many versions of it, but Oh, wonderful, Connor. Yeah, what do you I think? was I was just digesting what you were saying, and I think I agree with you. I think it's I think it's meant to be like an expansion on you've always had the power. It's it's what you want is inside of you, and it's there. Mm-hmm. I think because what you want is right in front of you, front of you. That's legally blonde. Another Jennifer Coolidge <laughs> moment. Yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's that. Funny, I've never I agree with thought me. about it. To, I, I don't know. I've until now, I've I've always just accepted what she said. I don't know why. I just yeah. <laughs> I did because the way she sells it, you're she like, sells it. I man. trust yeah. whatever could be reading the alphabet, reading the alphabet. I, that's the thing. And I'd just <laughs> be like, yes, reciting the alphabet, and I'd be like, mm-hmm, yes, it's true. trust you implicitly. Yeah. I will. But I agree. I think it. I think it's a, a continuation on you've always had the power inside you, and I think the lesson is not to discredit where you come from. And even oh if you don't always feel like you belong to where you came from, it is still a part of you. And it's actually something that stuck out to me with um, Tadra Call's reimagining um, out of Oz. It was kind of his own life story. At the very end of the show, he has a song that's kind of like this this scene um, where he's like, well, you know what? I learned that, you know what? My hometown really isn't that bad. And it's not what he made it out to be. And in the beginning, obviously, he doesn't really have favorable things to say about it and he wants to get out of it, but ultimately is like, well, no, this is a part of me. And 
I think that, yes, we can go on these journeys. Yes, we can go outside our own backyard. However, we can't always guarantee that that is going to make things better. We can't just say that there's no way that where I'm from is going to make me happy. I need to go find it somewhere else. And I think just to, I think to just acknowledge that, yes, there's this part of me that I don't want to escape from. I'm going to embrace it in a way that makes sense for me. I, I agree, though. I don't. I don't think it's the message is don't go anywhere. I think the message is <laughs> don't go anywhere. I think the it's message right. is like we all have a home. Let's try to figure out what that means for us. And for Dorothy, it meant Kansas. Yeah, doesn't mean that that would look the same for somebody else who maybe went on that journey. I think John Waters was the one mm. who was like, "Why did Dorothy want to go back home? Like, I would have stayed with the lion. I would have stayed in Oz." I love that, Nate. It's kind of like a journey of self-acceptance and self-love and not, you know, no matter what your relationship is with your hometown, it is a part of you or your past is a part of you. So it's almost like making friends with the different parts of yourself. If you want to hate that part of you yeah. or do you want to like love that Just part learn of you. Yeah. To or grow to love that part it. of you. Yeah. Yeah. Love yeah. that. Yeah. It's such a crazy line. I feel like I get new things out of it every time. I think in 2020, we are... We our heart stopped listening to that. Like we were like, wait, we what is she like saying? To really be like, like we what? really couldn't get it. But it's the beauty it's of the grown. line. I think it it's evolves. grown on me. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, Christian. What are your thoughts on the final lesson? I mean, for me, it just um, I really I I have no words because everyone has basically answered it for me. We all have our own interpretations of it, but I, Nate, I have to wholeheartedly agree with your interpretation um, to the hilt, because it, you know, uh, we, we all have our own versions of home. And um, some, of, some of it has to do with our own family or our chosen family, but the fact that we do have one of those two choices is a landmark in itself. And you know, home doesn't have to be somewhere where we where we grew up. It could be somewhere where we find acceptance. And this whole film has to be has is that whole message is that home doesn't have to be where your heart is. It's where you where you are most comfortable, where you find yourself at your most zen, in a way. Hmm. Awesome, wonderful, and what a beautiful, what a beautiful end ending to a beautiful film. Again, she ends up getting back to Kansas. She wakes up in her bed. She sees all of her loved ones around her, and they've also changed. I think that's the I think that's the important thing as well as they're not quite the same people they were at the beginning of the movie. They're more mindful. They're more. I think gratitude is a lot more present and grateful that like Dorothy's alive. Dorothy's okay. Uh, we have her back again. And again, there's that acceptance. And I think that's something that happens for for people. And I hope it happens for everyone eventually, where it's like they kind of get back to their family and there is that like welcome back moment. If there's been a falling out, if there's been disagreements. Like I by trade, I'm a therapist and I like I love to hear when people can reconcile those things. And it's sad when they can't. And that happens for whatever reason, but they reconcile in a different way, whether that be with the chosen family or 
with other people. But it's just that it's like that nice warm hug at the end of the movie of there's no place like home. And then you have those final notes that play. And it just is such a such a touching scene and a touching film overall that really takes us on a journey and makes it a memorable one that like we want to take again and again. So mm, beautiful. They were all emotional now. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. It really is a perfect film. Like mm. because of that. I love that it recently got rated. I think it's number two on Variety's list. Is that correct? Yes. It came out. Yes. Psycho behind Psycho. That's an interesting I, choice. I don't agree it on was number one. I think. Which it was That is fascinating to me. But I'm glad Oz is in the top three. I mean, yes. I think honestly, Godfather and Psycho should flop for me. That would that like, would feel better for yeah, me. Um, but I think I think Oz being right in the dead center is great of those those three films. It's gonna last forever. It'll always be there. It's, I think it's in our DNA. It's in our cultural DNA. Like the fact that like you know we started this sharing. Like some of us can't even remember when we were mm -hmm. introduced. It's just like been yeah. a part of it. Like yeah. that I think is gonna become more the norm. That'll probably start becoming the norm with Harry Potter and like mm -hmm. some other things. You know that mm -hmm. we have is like big kind of fantastical um like i don't even know like shells we can almost put ourselves inside of because they do help with i think your own self-growth yeah these stories yeah. everyone yeah. wants i just hurts. everyone wants an oz you know 100 percent. yeah i think it's it's just a universal story yeah. and it's one that like i plan on sharing with my own children that i already share with people and uh I just, I can't wait to see how this film continues to grow. And it, it's like you said, Tara, it's, it's in our DNA. Like this is a film that you can reference and people can understand the reference, even if they haven't seen the movie, like they can recognize like how, like, I don't think a day goes by where I don't hear or use an Oz reference in passing and people can get it without me having to even explain it, which is you can't do that with many, many films. Not anymore, especially with the rate we pump things out. Like yeah. it's just too fast. There's too much content. And we're our also our attention spans are yeah. <laughs> a different place now. Um so it is, yeah. The fact I think we talked about this one in one of the episodes with MGM like it's so memeable because people really yeah. recognize it. So you can like yeah. you could do all these funny things now with it in today's day and age, which is fun. So it's just like continues to comment on i think our evolving society politically it's pop, always relevant -wise, it's yeah. always relevant it's always applicable yeah. ding dong the witch is dead is like one of the most always. uh like blasted songs yeah. when someone who is considered not an ideal person of power is taken out of power <laughs> like mm -hmm. it's crazy that that's like a part of the history too now yeah everyone shares a knowing glance <laughs> Because I definitely Only in Oz, where you song. get a parade for killing someone. <laughs> Only in Oz. Only, Only in Oz. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Connor, I just wanted to end it with a little uh, Judy Garland isms. If uh, Dorothy Gale isms, well, talking about references. Yes. We do this on our um, on the Garland Gab, where we <laughs> there's a couple of movies of Judy's where Dorothy kind of pops in. <laughs> We need to know. We need to know. And I have I brought the audios now. I hope I'm just going to like play them on my phone and hold them up to the microphone and hopefully they will they will come across okay. Or 
I've got four examples and I don't know whether to say what they're from or what we're referencing or maybe just play them first and then see what everyone's reaction is and then talk about it. That one. Play it first and we'll react. I I won't say what this is from or anything like that, but I'm just going to play it. Did you get it? Jiminy Crickets. I've heard this. this. Oh, this is one of her ones that's like right after Oz, right? Just before. Just like an before. Andy Hardy. Andy Hardy. An Andy Hardy film? Um, This is List- Listen Darling, which is the one just before oh, Oz. Yes. I love Listen Darling. So cute. I mean, I know it's the same line, but it just, it, even she says it the same way as Dorothy does. Exact same. Yes, I love it. Um, okay, so this next one, um, the audio is a little bit quiet on this. I hope it'll come out okay. So we'll just see what we get from this. Did we get it? Hmm. We got it. I, it's just hard to yeah. tell what that is. Do we get a hint? Do you want, do you want a hint <laughs> for the movie that it's from or what we're referencing in Oz? Maybe oh. what we're referencing in Oz. Oh, well, the referencing in Oz, I feel like it's um when the witch throws the fireball and Dorothy lets out the shriek yes. as it... Okay. Oh, That's what I picked up. Yeah, on. and when the scarecrow first falls, I think that scream was the yes. thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a good shriek. Yeah. Yeah. It's from Babes in Arms, which was just after Oz. Okay. Got you. Um, You're in. With Mickey. With right? so Mickey. Mickey. <laughs> Good old Mickey. This one, okay, I, I will say it. It is from an Andy Hardy movie because it's going to give it away the second I play it. Um, so, yeah, just see what we're referencing in Oz. Okay, okay. Andy. Andy, darling, what's the matter? Toto, darling. Yes. <laughs> Toto, darling. Toto, darling. It's when yeah. Toto pops back through the window. Yeah. I love that. The little ads of Darling. Oh, it's like, totally girl, where are you from? Are you from How Kansas? Also, I'm not, my sexual orientation is just Judy Garland saying the word Darling. It's the way she says it. And there's, um, in Me and My Shadows, the film, there's a line where she like asks, I think, Sid Luff to say, don't call me baby, call me Darling. She's like, Darling. And she's she like, no. Don't just throw it away. Like you say it, and really like, use it, darling. She's like, yes, and I'm like, <laughs> that, is that is it. That is my identity, darling. Very niche, very niche. <laughs> I love darling that. is a great term of endearment, though. Yeah, I do I wonder it whether it was just almost ad libbed by Judy because she says darling in her adult life quite a lot. Yeah, maybe she's yes, there. yeah, like on the show too, right? Yeah. Darling yeah. is like a go to yes. for her. Yeah, yeah. I. Definitely it said Toto Darling Toto in the script. Dar- <laughs> I have the script. I'll look when I get home. It's funny to see Brit. I am 13. However old I'm We're jumping forward uh, in her movies with this very last one. We're going about 10 years after Oz. This okay. is like 30 seconds of a clip, but I think the very last few seconds is where it's the most Dorothy. So just see what you think. Yeah. Oh, we might as well. And there was a week here. Oh, I never know. It's a noisy place. Those 
pirate? Yes. I was thinking pirate. the pirate. Yeah. Okay. Pedro. Pedro. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. You're so right. It's just how she says home. Yeah. Like it's yeah. the yeah. same inflection, the same kind of panic, the anti M. Well, it's giving me the, yeah, the witch's castle when she's yeah. trapped. Oh, yeah. Boy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Come back. Although, <laughs> Connor, my question for you is do we ever see Judy doing the invisible table hands ever again in any other movies that she has in Oz where she just is like her arms are a perfect right angle because she does not know what to do with them? <laughs> not off the top of my head. No, I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. She probably doesn't have a lot of other films where she wanders that much and on those yeah. territory. Yeah, she is yeah. so like she knows where she, she is. is more, yeah. yeah, she's more like nudging in with somebody. I the feel leader. like yeah, mm-hmm. but her arms totally gravitate. <laughs> table, Judy table. I'll keep an eye out for it though, and I'll let you know. Keep an eye out. <laughs> yes. I definitely have modeled Please. my own. I don't know what to do with my hands after that. Well, it's just an invisible table. Or has anyone else gone into like a, a supermarket and got the shopping basket and like held it like? Oh, oh yeah. I Is there missed. any other way to hold? Every it? time, every time, How I do other people market, hold it? That's what I always do. It's uncomfortable. It's very one hundred percent. That's it for me. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. Well, guys, we have come to the end of our Yellow Brick Road chapter today. Um, Just wanted to say thank you guys one more time for being a part of this wonderful journey and wonderful experience. Um, Thank you guys for taking out the time. It means so much to me. And join us next month when we discuss 1950s Walt Disney's classic Cinderella. Yay! We will. That's a classic. Oh, Thank so you for great. having us. This was so fun and such a great excuse to just hang out with all of you. Yes. Yes. Thank you. This was lovely. Thank you for joining us. We loved having you all. All right. Well, thank you for having us together, Christian. And we will talk to everyone next month. Bye. Bye. Thanks for being. <laughs>